0: Good morning. Welcome on this beautiful, rainy morning. (laughs) You know, uh, the Taiwan team, we just got back just a little over a week ago, and I just want to thank you for your prayers and your financial support. We certainly felt your grace while we were in Taiwan, and the gospel went out to many students, and I am confident that students saw the love of Christ in each team member. We just want to thank you for your support. Well, does anyone recognize this street? Does anybody recognize it? Raise your hand if you do. Okay. It's probably the most famous, the most photographed street in America. It stretches only one block long, yet tourists travel from all over the world to drive it. This is San Francisco's Lombard Street. And the steepness of the street makes it too dangerous to travel in both directions, so they only allow you. To drive downhill in a zigzag fashion. And Lombard is not only the most famous road in America, but it's also a one way street. And people love to drive it, and no one complains that you can only drive one way. But there's another one way street that might better be described as infamous. It's not steep, but it is straight. And unlike Lombard, it's the most unpopular street in the world because of where it leads and who it's named after. The street is Jesus. And he claimed it was the only one that leads to God. And before he went to the cross to comfort his disciples, Jesus spoke to them about heaven. And before he left them, he wanted to make sure they knew the way to get there. And what he told them has become today probably the most outrageous Politically incorrect and in-your-face statement ever spoken by Jesus, it's John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. James Merritt once said that this one statement that Jesus made raises more blood pressure, angers more people, and causes more controversy than anything else Jesus ever said. You know, we here in America are pretty confused. It seems that we don't want to grapple with a truth that's been made very plain in Scripture. That there is only one true God, and He alone is supreme, far above the false gods of the world. And if we're to have a relationship with Him, it's not enough to just go on what feels right or what we sincerely believe to be true. But to have eternal life, to have a relationship with God, we must relate to God on His terms, not ours. Because, think of it, after all, He is God. And this morning as we continue our study in First Samuel, we'll be reminded that God's truth is narrow. That His truth is precise. And there's only one way we can come to Him. Only one way we can stand in His holy presence. Only when we come to God His way, not our way. And when we do, there's always blessing and victory. Well, if you would, turn to your Bible to First Samuel chapter 4. And I've been assigned chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. Now, that's a lot of ground to cover. Don't worry, we'll take a break. We're going to serve lunch between chapters 5 and 6. Okay, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We know it's true. And this morning, I ask that it would penetrate our hearts. I ask that you would build strong convictions in us through the truth of your word. Lord, we ask that you'd open the scriptures to us. Lord, give us eyes to see what you have for us this morning. Hearts to obey it and to apply it to our life. We ask that you would guide and direct us this morning through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord a host who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So the Israelite army was defeated. They suffered 4,000 casualties. 4,000 men were killed that day. And the elders asked, why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? And then they got an idea. They said, let's go get the ark. And next time, we'll carry it into battle with us, and it'll save us from our enemies. You see, their plan is to use the ark as a good luck charm, expecting it, the wooden metal box, to win their battles, when they should have been on their knees before God, crying out to Him for help. So they go to Shiloh, and they bring back the ark. Now, you may recall the ark of the covenant contained the Ten Commandments given by God to Moses. And it was supposed to be kept in the most holy place of the tabernacle, where only the high priest could enter once a year. And Eli's sons, they go in and they unlawfully remove the ark. Now, when the Israelites see the ark coming into the camp, they shout so loud that the Bible says the ground shakes. And even the Philistines hear the noise. And when, and when they realize the Israelites have the ark, the Philistines panic. I mean, they'd be scared. They'd be really scared because they remember how God had miraculously discovered Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt. And they cry out, help, help. Who can save us from the mighty gods of Israel? These are the same gods who destroyed the Egyptians with plagues. But they decide to be brave, to be men and to fight as they never had before and fight they did. This time, Israel is defeated again, but they lost 30,000 soldiers. So much for having the ark with them. And the ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Finus, died that day just as God said they would because of their wickedness. You remember Nick spoke about that last week. And when Eli heard the news of the defeat, the death of his sons, and that the ark was captured, he fell backward off his chair and broke his neck and died. He had been Israel's judge for 40 years. And his death marked the end of the dark period of judges when most of Israel ignored God. And when Eli's pregnant daughter-in-law hears the news, she goes into labor and dies in childbirth, but not before she named her child Ichabod. Poor kid. Poor kid. Can you imagine being named Ichabod? I think that'd make me feel all icky inside. But that's what she did. Look at verse 21. And she named the child Ichabod saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband's death. The name Ichabod means no glory. And each time this boy is called by his name, it'll serve as a reminder of Israel's decline and spiritual darkness. You see, Israel's defeat was a judgment. It was a judgment against the corruption of Eli's family and a nation that had turned away from God. The ark had become an idol. They worshipped the ark rather than God himself. So the ark of God is captured. And it ends up in the Philistine city of Ashdod. So what happens there? Well, the Philistines put the ark in the temple of their god, Dagon. And you see, the Philistines had many gods, but Dagon was their chief god. So they put the ark beside the the big idol of Dagon. They were trying to show that Dagon was superior over the god of Israel. But in the morning, they find the statue of Dagon lying on its face in front of the ark of God. So you know what they did? They prop up their god Dagon and put him back in his place. They pick him back up, stick him back in his place. But the next morning, the same thing happens. Dagon has fallen face down before the ark again, but this time his hands and his head had broken off. You know what the Philistines said when they saw it? They said, "Dagon go gone." <laughs> I mean, what a bummer! I mean, what good is a god without hands or a head? I mean, he couldn't think or do anything. But now just think of the picture God had given them. Because of his love, he was showing the Philistines that he was the one true God. He was showing the Philistines that before God, before Yahweh, all other gods must fall. All other gods must be propped up. But unfortunately, as we'll see, the Philistines don't act upon the light that God had given them. They don't act upon the fact that God had revealed himself to them. You know, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about how we come to church and we hear the word of God. And God reveals himself to us. We read the Bible and he shows us things. He reveals himself to us. And the question we have to ask is, do we obey and apply to our lives what he's shown us? It's a good question, isn't it? So what happens to the Philistines in Ashdod? Look at chapter 5, verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. So they sent the ark to the Philistine city of Gath. But God afflicts them with tumors as well. So they send it to Ekron, But the same thing happens there. They want to get rid of the ark too. Because death had filled the city with panic. So finally, after seven months, the Philistines said, we're sending it back to Israel. We've had enough. We want to send the ark back to Israel. And they send it back with a guilt offering of five gold tumors and five gold rats. Now, some scholars believe the Philistines were affected by bubonic plague, causing tumors which was spread by rats, explaining why they made the five gold tumors in rats. Now, I'm not sure how you make a gold tumor. I mean, what does that look like? I I don't know. Uh, We'll have to ask one of our doctors, but like a little gold blob or I don't know what it is. But anyway, they decide to run a little test to see if this is really the hand of God, Israel's God. So they do a little test. They get a new cart ready with two cows that had just given birth to baby calves. And they pin up the calves and they hitch the cows to a cart. And then on the cart, they put the Ark of God and the gold tumors and the rats on it. And they want to see what they're going to send it back to Israel. And they send the cows down the road and the cows left their calves And go straight down the road. They don't turn to the left or the right. And they're just mooing all the way. And they go straight to the town of Beth Shemesh. Now only God could do that. Only God could cause the cows to leave their baby calves. You see, God had revealed himself to the Philistines again. But they still clung to their worthless idols. And they will not repent. So, when the Israelites see the ark of God coming, they shout for joy. And the cows stop beside a huge rock. And they put the ark on the rock. And they sacrifice the two cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. So the ark is back in Israel. Everyone is happy and all is good. Right? No, not really. Look at verse 19. But the Lord killed 70 men from Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. And the people mourned greatly because of what the Lord had done. And they asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Who is able to stand in his presence, this holy God? And that's the question I want us to think about this morning. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord? This holy God. Dagon couldn't stand. He fell prostrate on his face. And he's a picture of all the false gods of this world. You see, the Bible does tell us there are other gods. Do they really exist? Are they real? Well, they certainly seem real to the people who worship them. As I mentioned, we just returned from Taiwan last week. And we saw Buddhist temples filled with idols. It seemed they had a God to pray to for everything. They had a pr- God to pray to to help you in school if you had to take an exam. A God to pray to to help you find a, a wife or a husband. A God to pray to to help you get pregnant or to find a job. They had a God for everything. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. So you see, there are the false gods of this world. And there is the one true God who revealed himself through creation and the person of Jesus Christ, we read in Psalm one thirty five fifteen: The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they cannot speak; they have eyes, but they can't see; they have ears, but they cannot hear. Nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. We saw this firsthand in Taiwan. Temples filled with people worshiping the created rather than the creator. And it broke our hearts to see it. It was just heartbreaking. No wonder Jesus told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now when I thought about this picture of Dagon laying on his face before the ark of the Lord, I couldn't help but think of what it says in Philippians chapter 2. That how after Jesus suffered on the cross, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think of it. One day, every knee will bow before Jesus. Every famous person who's ever lived will bow their knee before Jesus. Every rich person, every poor person who has ever lived will bow their knee before Jesus. Buddha will. Mohammed will bow before Jesus. You and me, everyone who has ever lived, will bow down before Jesus Christ and with their mouth confess that he is Lord. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Well, the Philistines couldn't either. But they had religion. And I mean, I'm sure they were sincere when they made the gold tumors and the gold rats. I mean, they had their temples and their gods, their religious ceremonies. And I'm sure that they, what, what they were doing they thought was right. But religion has never helped anyone stand in the presence of God. How many religions would you guess there are in the world today? Fifty? Maybe a hundred? A thousand? How about 5,000? Well, the major ones include Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Shintoism. But according to the Christian Encyclopedia, listen to this. There are over 9,900 distinct and separate religions in the world today. And it increases every year. Think of that. Nearly 10,000 different religions in the world. And one of the predominant worldviews that dominates 21st century thinking about God and how to get to Him is that religion can get you to God. And it doesn't matter which one, any religion will do. But if that's true, how do we explain that Jesus even bothered to come to earth and die on the cross to begin with? If any religion... Uh, works as well as the next, then you know what? Good Friday becomes dumb Friday. And why would God allow His Son, His precious Son, to suffer a horrible death on the cross if it wasn't necessary? Listen. We know that religion is not the way to God. How do we know? Because Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world and was raised from the dead. That's how we know. I heard about a pastor who took a man who loved boxing and he was not at all religion to a heavyweight fight. And before the match, one of the boxers knelt down and he did the sign of the cross. And the man said, hey, preacher, he says, what does that mean? Pastor said, doesn't mean a thing if he doesn't know how to box. And you know what? It doesn't. It doesn't matter how religious we are if we're not on the one-way street called Jesus. No, all the religion of the world won't help us stand in the presence of God. So who can stand? Dagon couldn't stand. The Philistines couldn't stand. And the Israelites couldn't stand either. And they knew of the true and living God. They knew the true and living God, but they were not in relationship with him. You see, there's many people who know about God and come to church, but they really don't know him. Christ doesn't really live in their heart. They really don't have a relationship with God. And the Israelites, you see, they didn't come to God his way. They tried to come to God their way. So they couldn't stand either. Remember, God struck down 70 men when they looked into the ark. They had made the ark an idol. And they did three things that were wrong. First, they sacrificed the cows that brought the ark to them when they should have sacrificed a bull. God had given clear instructions in Leviticus twenty-two nineteen. He said, you must present a male without defect from the cattle, sheep, or goats in order that it may be accepted on your behalf. You see, the sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed toward Christ. They were a picture of the sacrifice that he would one day make on the cross, and God could not allow that picture to be perverted. And then secondly, they parade the ark by placing it on a large rock for all to see when God had instructed them in Numbers 4.5 to cover it. And thirdly, finally and decisively, they looked inside the ark, which God had clearly warned them not to do in Numbers 4.20. I mean, even Indiana Jones knew not to do that. Now many would look at this today and they'd say, Well, hey, wasn't God being intolerant? Wasn't God being narrow minded? Well, wasn't He overly strict? I mean, after all, didn't the people rejoice when they saw the ark? They were all happy? And and, and at least they offered sacrifices. Maybe it was a cow, but so what? They, you know, they must have thought that what they were doing was right. And I'm sure that they were sincere. But you see, we can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. I just talked to a pastor I've known for many years, and he told me uh, that years ago, one time he thought he was putting on deodorant, and it was Ben Gay. That was an invigorating experience. He was sincerely wrong. And I remember years ago, I thought, years ago, I thought I was using contact solution. I sincerely thought I had a bottle of contact solution but it was a bottle of hydrogen peroxide. I was sincerely wrong, and I thought I was going to go blind. You see, the Bible warns in Proverbs fourteen twelve: there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Notice, it seems right, the scripture says, but if we go that way, it'll lead to death. There's only one way we can stand in God's presence. Only when we come to God His way, on His terms. Now for many today, yes, that may seem narrow. But Jesus taught us the way to God is narrow. He said in Matthew 7, 13, He said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Only just a few are willing to walk the narrow road with Christ. Think of it. Jesus Christ, who journeyed from heaven to earth and back to heaven again, who knew the way better than anyone else who's ever lived, declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter reflected Christ's teaching when he said in Acts 4:12 he said salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And the apostle Paul taught the same thing in 1 Timothy 2:5. He said for there is one God and one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus. Who can stand in his presence? this holy God? The answer is found in the little book of Jude. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who can stand? Only those who have Jesus. Only those who know Christ. Only those who have the Savior. Now the question is, how? How does it happen? How do we stand in the presence of God? Samuel shows us how in chapter 7. He's been gone now for several chapters. Remember Nick spoke about him last week. Now he reappears in chapter 7. Sorrow has gripped the nation of Israel for 20 years. The ark is put away like an unwanted box in the attic. But now Samuel comes to lead Israel back to God. Now look at First Samuel chapter 7, beginning with verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the bells and the Ashtoreth. And they served the Lord only. And Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah. And I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And fasted that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. This is true repentance. The people confess their sin. They say, oh, we have sinned, God. But they also take action. They get rid of their foreign gods. They flee temptation. You see, if we're truly repentant, then we'll do all we can to avoid sin. Remember, some of the Israelites look into the ark and 70 die. No wonder the Bible says, flee from temptation. Flee. Run from sin, avoid it, and especially if it's sexual in nature. The Bible says flee. You know, many people express their sorrow for sin, but then they refuse to do what they need to do to avoid it. We may say, Well, I'll be all right, or it won't happen again, I've got it under control. But many times the reality is we're only sorry about the effects of sin. Or when we get caught in sin. We still want to hold on to the sin itself. You see, true repentance is not only turning from sin, but it's also turning back to God. It means you make a U-turn. You're going this way. And it might be a way that seems right. Because you've been deluded by this world and deceived by the devil. And you're going this way. And it might seem right. But if you keep going, it's going to lead to death. But you realize that you're in sin and it's not God's way, and you turn from that sin and turn to God. See, that's repentance, turning to God as well. And that's what Israel did. They're gathering together, their fasting, their confession and the pouring out of water made their repentance God-focused. God wants our heart, not our religion. He wants our heart, not our rituals or our ceremonies. He wants our heart. He wants all of it. He wants an undivided heart. He wants us to put the way, the idols in our life. and Come to, back to him with all our heart. Now, when the Philistines heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they came up to attack them again. And the Israelites were afraid. And they said to Samuel, don't stop praying for us, Samuel. Pray for Samuel. They're finally turning back to God. Then Samuel offered up a sacrifice to the Lord. And it wasn't a gold rat or a gold tumor. It wasn't a cow. It was a lamb without spot or defect. It was a picture of Christ. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, between us and God stands a barrier called sin. And if we're going to be reconciled to a perfect, holy God, that barrier has to be dealt with. And we can't go over it and we can't go around it by our own efforts. Sin demands a payment. And Jesus made that payment on the cross. Now, as Samuel offered up the lamb, he cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf. And the Lord thundered against the Philistines, the Bible says. And they were routed before the Israelites. Victory at last. In Revelation 12, it says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. With Christ, there is victory. Victory. With Christ, there's victory over sin. There's victory over Satan. Victory over trial and tribulation. Victory over death and the grave. When we come and give our heart completely to Him. Now look at 1 Samuel seven twelve, Verse 12, it says, Then Samuel took a stone and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. You know, this section... This morning began with a defeat at Ebenezer, and now it ends with a victory. For us, our Ebenezer is the cross. At the cross, we see the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. At the cross, we see the love and the mercy of God and His generous help to sinners. We look to the cross and we say, thus far, the Lord has helped us. If he has helped us by giving us his own son, then he will surely bring us home one day to glory. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you ever feel like God has abandoned you, or you ever feel fearful or overwhelmed by problems and trials, look to the cross. Remember the cross. The cross is our Ebenezer. From the cross, God is saying, I love you and I will help you. You know, the greatest help we need from the cross is forgiveness. And I want to ask you this morning, are you sure your sins are forgiven? Are you sure that if you died today, you would go to heaven? Are you sure that Christ lives in your heart? You see, if you're not sure... You can make sure this morning. You say, well, what would I have to do? Same thing Israel did. Be willing to repent of your sins. Be willing to turn from your sin. You notice I say willing because you can't do that on your own. But if you're willing, God will help you. And then look to the cross and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're not sure that you've ever really received Christ, I'm going to ask you to do that this morning. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, if there is someone here this morning. And they can't say, I'm sh- I know my sins are forgiven. I know I'm going to heaven. But they'd like to know and they'd like to be sure. Would you help them right now to come to you? Would you help them right now to turn From their sin. And put their faith in you Lord Jesus. Who loved them and died on the cross. And rose again. So if that's you. I just ask you to pray this prayer right now from your heart. And if it's from your heart. God will hear it. Dear God I know I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry for my sin. Will you help me to turn. From my sin. And Lord Jesus. I believe you died for me. And rose again from the dead. And I'm asking you right now. To come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive my sin. And make me the person you want me to be. And help me to follow you with a whole heart. Father for those of us who know you. Lord show us. Where there might be idols in our life. If there's sin we need to repent of. That we need to turn from. Would you help us do that? Would you help us to serve you with a whole heart. An undivided heart. For you are worthy. You are worthy. Of our whole life. Help us to be the men and women you want us to be. In Jesus name. Amen.